Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Good morning, church. Welcome to you online. Hope you enjoyed worshiping together. I always have a good time and worship together. Um, before we get further into the message, though, I do have some sad news. Um, Peter Dirksen, one of our members here, passed away on February 14th, uh, leaving behind his wife and three children, their families, uh, their daughters, uh, or their daughter Lynn and Jim Duick, they actually attend here, as does his brother-in-law Peter and then Nettie Giesbrick. So let's be praying for them. I, I can only imagine what they're going through. That was, you know, Valentine's Day when he passed away. Uh, that'll be hard in its own unique way. So they need our support. They need our prayers. If you know them, you're probably already uh, giving them your condolences and prayers. But for the rest of us, uh, write their names down. I always like to encourage you to do that. But if you can, Anne especially, if you want to write down her name and continue to pray for her over the next few weeks and months. And uh, we'll support her as a church family. Amen. All right, I want to pray for them. And just as a sign of support for them, if you could reach out your hands and we will support them like that. Lord Jesus, Peter is with you. And, and because of that, we know, Lord, that, that he's experiencing a joy and a life that none of us can even imagine. And yet he leaves behind a family, Lord, that is grieving, that is grieving and mourning the loss of a husband, a father, a grandfather, a brother, and a friend. Lord, that's, those are big holes. And nothing in this world can fill that gap, that, that void. So we're asking, Lord, as you promised in Scripture, that, you, that your abiding shalom would be close to them, that you would bring the family comfort and strength over these days, that they would be able to hold on to precious memories, and even more so, that they would hold on to the precious hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to switch gears. There's two questions that I want to answer today. At least I'm going to attempt to. And uh, I'll see if I can stand the whole time. If not, I'll sit for some of it. My knee is getting just a lot better, so you know. Um, but it's not all the way better yet. One of the questions is from a skeptic, and the other one is from Christians. And, and the first one goes like this. Why would you serve, I just saw it online again yesterday, why would you serve a God who's misogynistic, angry, and violent, and genocidal? And as soon as Christians will start kind of combating that online, it's always shocking to see how, how few believers know how to defend that position. Because they'll start throwing things around like the Canaanite genocide. Uh, Sean talked a little bit about it last week. I thought he did a great, oh, wasn't that great having Sean McDowell here? Yeah, that was a, good, that was a treat. And uh, I'm very glad that we can do that for you guys. But uh, I loved his atheist encounter. Uh, if you were here for that, then you should know that his whole goal is to be antagonistic. And so if you watch some of his videos online, I've seen them before, uh, he doesn't even always make good points. He just kind of makes points to try to like <laughs> be the antagonist. He does a very good job at it. Uh, but he also does a good job answering questions. But, but on to this, these are questions that we need to be firm on. And the great thing is, we don't need to look any further than God's word to find the answers you'll actually find everything you need to know about God in his word. And you'll find out about his, his motivations, what happened, how it happened. You just have to be able to look deeper than what often people do, and that is pick one verse. One verse, one line, and they try to build a whole belief system about God based on that. That doesn't work. 
Your, your view of God will always be off if you do it that way. But he gave us the entire scripture that we might know him, one of many reasons. All right, the other question is, uh, that we hear, and that is, what does God expect from me? And, and probably most of you have more struggled with that one. What does God want from me? Like, what does it mean to be truly successful in the kingdom? How can I be successful? Like, I want to make an impact. I think everyone does. And maybe, at least at some point in your life you will. It'll matter at some point. You know, what impact did I leave on the world, and was I successful? As Christians, we should be asking, were we fruitful for his kingdom? Well, today we're going to go back into the grand story, and that's how we're going to unpack this. It just happens to be right where we were. We finished off with Moses there, uh, but we're going to dive right back into the grand story, and this will be, um, well, before I cover that, I'll just say why, does, why the grand story matters. The grand story matters, right, because if we don't understand the beginning, we won't understand the end. And if you don't understand the end, you won't understand what your purpose is now. It'll get twisted. So God lays out all of his purposes and plans. They're right in here. And that's one of the big reasons we're doing it. The other reason is uh, we've talked lots about biblical worldview. And you don't get a biblical worldview from you know, a podcast or Google. Don't go to Google for a biblical worldview. But you will get it in here. And it's not just like, you know, well, you're a Christian, you have to say that. No, like, you look, compare the worldviews that are out there. We're not doing that today. We've done that in the past, and we'll do it again in the future. Ours is the most reasonable, logical, and makes the most sense in the real world. And not only that, it's true and empowered by the God of the creator of all things, right? So we're, we covered things like uh, eight questions that we look at are seven. Origin, identity, problem, solution, purpose, ident- uh, destiny, and God. So... Oh, that one I actually had on here. Oops. <clears throat> oh, morality. I missed that one, didn't I? So those are the big ones. So if you, if you don't remember those, you can write them down or take a picture, because I'm moving on now. <laughs> so now we're going to go back to God's grand story. Four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Is this ringing bells from the fall now? We're coming back in, right? We had Christmas and then January prayer fasting, and now we're right into this. Uh, four main chapters, five promises. Now, if you're going to go through Scripture, you're going to find a lot more covenant. You'll find more promises, and definitely you'll find more covenants, like uh, the covenant you made to Noah. We're talking about the main ones that kind of help you understand God's story. That's what I'm talking about here. Uh, there's one hero, the serpent crusher, who I know we actually revealed who that was at Christmas, but we'll just pretend if you didn't, if you didn't actually, if you weren't here for Christmas, you don't know. All right? There's one hero, the serpent crusher, whose name is going to be revealed somewhere around Easter, so it's coming up. (laughs) And we're moving towards an epic finale, okay? So it's a story of redemption. It's a love story, if you like love stories. It's an action story, if you like action stories. But the best thing of all, it's God's story. And the coolest thing is, it's not over. We're, it's like a live action film, but it's better than that. It's live action, and he invites us to be a part of his story. And that, I find, is the most incredible invitation. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how badly you've screwed up. He invites you to be a part of his story. And you get to be, if you accept the invitation. So, what have we all covered? First thing we started with was creation. 
And we'll go and start looking on here. So we see creation. We went from there right into the fall. So those first two chapters kind of happen rather quickly. And then we're right into chapter three, right? Redemption. And once we're into redemption, we're already moving into restoration. It's just not the final restoration yet. Because the final restoration comes when Jesus returns, when he completes the new covenant. We have new bodies. We have a new spirit, a new heart, the ability to obey. And it's going to be heaven forever on the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be incredible. But until then, we had the fall in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve showed up, and they got tempted. And from there, we had the Edenic Covenant, right? So we had the Edenic Covenant, which essentially is the promise of a serpent crusher. That's where that name comes from, if you weren't here for that. The serpent crusher is the one promised by God that's going to come and undo the curse. So undo the curse of sin, undo the curse of death, undo that. And, and not just for humankind, for humankind, yes, but also for creation because sin and death has infected all things. From there we went into Noah and we got to see how God attempted, well he didn't attempt, but for our sakes, God already knows, he knows what was coming in the future, but we, we saw God do a bit of a reset with righteous Noah and his family, but we found immediately after they come out of the ark, sin is already there and, and the Lord is lamenting that every inclination of man's heart was towards evil. And from Noah, we go back into, or we go into the promise with Abraham, Abrahamic covenant. And I'm not sure, do you guys remember the Abrahamic covenant? Was it conditional or unconditional? One more time. Unconditional, okay? Do you remember there was three main things? Now, there is more. If you're, if you're studying this for yourself, and I encourage you to do so, there's more than three things that were entailing to the Abrahamic covenant. But we focused on three main things. Do you remember what they were? Land, blessing to the nations, yeah, and to make them a great nation, right? So they were going to be a great nation, they'll have land, and they're going to be a blessing to the rest of the nations, okay? So if you're just wiping off the rust, don't worry about it, it's all good, it's been months, and now we're jumping back into the series. So that was unilateral, it's unconditional, and it's eternal. And these promises are important, much like the covenants we make in marriage are important, Right? Because those covenants dictate how you're supposed to behave and respond for the rest of your life till death do you part. God holds himself to his covenants in the same way. These promises show you what he's going to do, what he's promising to do till death do us part. And obviously he's not going to be destroyed. But you remember that picture of the bull being torn in two. From there we go into Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Israel is born, obviously. Uh, Egypt. From there, we go in, we're into Egypt and, and captivity and slavery. Moses and the Exodus. Uh, and then from there, we go into the Mount Sinai and the third promise, and that is the Mosaic Covenant. Sorry if you can't totally see that. I probably shouldn't have used red. I'll learn that for next week. Can anyone read the red? Oh, some of you can. Half of you can't. That's okay. It's my fault. Don't worry. Your eyes are fine. The Mosaic Covenant, though, was, you know, that's where we get the main Ten Commandments. There were 613 commands given, so it's more than just the moral laws. We also get the ceremonial laws, and there were civil laws given. But essentially what God did with the Mosaic Covenant, it was conditional, unlike the unconditional Abrahamic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant gave them the terms by which they could stay in the land and, and hold on to that promise that God had given them. Kind of like, this is a really imperfect picture, but if I would give you a car, if I'd give my kids a car and it was free, that would be, an, you know, I give this to you unconditionally, it's yours. No matter what you do with it, it's yours. 
However, they still have to follow basic rules if they want to keep it like rules of the, of the road and they have to follow basic laws. They also have to stick somewhat at least within the manufacturer's design. Right? Otherwise, their car will break down and it won't work. It'll be useless. So that's kind of a way to look at the, the difference of why you see those two. One is an unconditional gift. God's doing it no matter what. One is conditional. It requires them to do something. Now, intro. Now we're going to go into Joshua. And uh, Joshua, Moses to Joshua to the promised land. And I must say, when I just say Joshua and the words Jericho, does anyone have a little tune coming to your mind? Is there any VeggieTale fans in here? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. Yeah, I know, it's humming that all week long. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Yeah, anyhow, I was trying to convince Jira that they should do it as a worship song. He didn't uh, think that was a good choice. I'm like, come on. Anyways, <laughs> we're probably glad that he's in his spot and I'm in mine. <laughs> At least I am. All right, we're going to look at a few things because it's important for us to understand before we go forward, because I said we're going to try to answer two things. What does God expect from believers on how to be successful? We're also going to try to cover, you know, the, the Canaanite conquest and understanding what happened in that whole Canaanite conquest that some charge as genocide. And why does it matter? Like, why did God choose Israel to make covenants with them? And why does that matter so much? Why is there so much emphasis on that in Scripture? Well, I'll just go through this very quickly because I do want to get past to our next point, but basically to reveal Yahweh to the nations. God chose one people out of many. Remember that the Tower of Babel, he had to split them apart to protect human beings from their own pride. And then from there, he began to narrow in because in the beginning, he actually was working with all of mankind. Once he had to split them up at the Tower of Babel, he started narrowing down onto one nation, and that was going to be the nation now that he would display his glory to the earth, right? So Israel is that nation, and he didn't choose them because they were a righteous nation. They aren't, just like we aren't. He chose them because he wanted to. He's God, and he chose them, and he said, I'm going to show the nations who I am through this people group, and he picked a small, insignificant bunch, and there is so much that we can learn about who God is, even through his selection. So, reveal Yahweh to the nations, uh, reveal Yahweh's nature. What is God like? Is he kind? Is he angry? Is he benevolent? Is he loving? Is he merciful? What does he care about? What's right? What's wrong? All of that was revealed through Israel and their interactions with the nations around. The nations received scripture through Israel. Right? We got our scriptures through Israelites, which is amazing. Uh, we also received the church from Israel, salvation through Israel, the serpent crusher, all through Israel, and God's ultimate plan of redemption and restoration involves the fulfillment of his promises to Israel. That's why it matters. So sometimes we get that idea, or some certain camps of Christians get the idea, you know, well, we kind of moved on. We're in the church age. We can forget all about Israel. God was finished with them, and now he's chosen us. And to me, that's a terrifying belief system. Because he made unconditional promises to them, and if he can break unconditional promises to them, what would stop him from breaking unconditional promises with us? But we know he's a promise maker and a promise keeper. Amen. All right, so 
Understanding this will help you make sense of a lot of the, you look at the history, not just in scripture, but then all the way to 70 AD, where there was that first Holocaust, and then the Holocaust, and since then, the nation of Israel has been persecuted like no other nation or people group. And you look at the conflict that's going on there now, and you can understand why if you understand the grand story. You can see what God is doing through a people there. So, moving forward, Moses. Moses, the rebellion that changed an 11-day journey to 40 years. Can you imagine making a mistake that changed an 11-day journey to a 40-year journey? Can you imagine that? That'd be a hard thing to swallow. Moses leads, you know, the, the Israelites through out of captivity. So it starts around 1377 BC. So if you follow up there, Egypt by Goshen there, and so he leads them out. So he's leading them. You'll see the Red Sea, that top corner. That's where they crossed on dry land. Like he's the 10 plagues, leads them on a journey. They don't just leave poor. They leave and they plunder Egypt. Like they have riches. Actually, a lot of Egyptians come out with them. By the way, doesn't that tell you a little bit about God's character? That idea that God chose one people to the exclusion of everyone else, that he was just angry and wrathful and wanted to kill everyone else, doesn't even line up from Egypt on. A lot of Egyptians came with the Israelites. Anyways, through down to Mount Sinai. Now, you'll see those little triangles. There's different, not, not, it's not certain where Mount Sinai is. So this is one possible path, depending on where Mount Sinai is, it might change a little bit. But anyways, then you'll see they go up there. So once they stop at the top arrow, that's where they spent 40 years wandering, which should have been an 11-day journey into the Promised Land, okay? So that's there. Going into Numbers, now there's no, this is how the rebellion happened. I mean, we know, if you know the story, we, we covered this in fall, and that was Israel's constant complaining and stuff coming out, right? Oh, that we were back in Egypt. And I'm always, you know, I used to read that and say, I can't believe Israel would do that, and then the Lord began to show me over and over how I do that. Right? Just, you know, it's not Egypt, but we look back to slavery, we look to the world as though it's better than what God gives us, and it's not. But anyways, now there's no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, What would, uh, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here? Then Moses and Aaron went to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, that's the key, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of the rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. Now, a little bit earlier in the story, Moses had struck, the Lord had commanded Moses to strike the rock, and the water came forward. This time, though, the Lord was saying, don't strike the rock like last time. I want you to speak to the rock. And Moses didn't. It looks like he was frustrated. He struck the rock instead. And because of that, they lost out on their inheritance. Not an eternal inheritance, but they lost out. Moses lost out on the ability to go into the promised land where God had called him to go. 
God allowed that entire generation to die off in the wilderness before he actually brought the next generation into the promised land the kid promised to Moses. Now there's some key lessons that we can learn from Moses because that's a really humbling story. Now, sometimes we'll look at that and say, wow, that was a really, that's harsh. You have to remember what God is doing with Israel. A lot of times you'll find he judges very quickly with them. Uh, and we're us, whereas with, with us, he's, he's often slower. But God is doing something. He's protecting the lineage, and he's preparing to bring the serpent crusher that's going to undo the entire curse. It's very important that the people of Israel are set apart, and Moses was also a leader to the people. But there's a few things that I want us to look at from Moses' rebellion that we can learn. Number one, trust and obedience equals loving God. And we're right down to what does God expect, and you're going to see this theme all throughout today. Trust and obedience. Uh, we often talk about faith. Uh, trust can be another. Trust is a little different than faith. Faith is the belief in the unseen. But often when we look at the type of faith that God is looking for, it really defines more as our English word trust. We believe, but we trust. We trust him, so that's why we trust and obey. And that's what God is looking for. Moses' actions cost him and those who followed him. That's a key lesson we can learn from Moses. Sometimes we look at our own compromise and we think, it's small, it's insignificant. And I would ask, is your compromise as small and insignificant as not speaking or striking a rock when you were supposed to speak to the rock? See, sometimes we, what we do is we minimize our sin and we magnify the sins of others, right? Like someone who commits adultery or views pornography, I mean, they're a bad sinner. But I mean, my little no to the Lord is just small, it's insignificant, it doesn't matter. And I think we can learn from Scripture that, that all sin, all compromise, Scripture's clear, the wages of sin is death. There's consequences, no matter how big or small. Obviously, the bigger they are, the larger the consequences on the earth. God is just. He dealt with Israel in the same way as he did with the nations. So with that charge that Israel gets a pass, well, Israel can just get away with everything, whereas the nations cannot, just simply isn't true. We see that again and again throughout Scripture, and that is God dealt the same with Israel as he did with his own people. And lastly, God provides. This one I just absolutely love, because what did it say? Like, I'll just back up just a little bit here. There we go. Uh, Moses lifts up his hand and strikes the rock. That's disobedience, right? So God says, speak. Moses strikes. That's disobedience. And then look what happens. Water comes out abundantly. And that's probably my favorite part, because the rest of that story in this little section makes me shiver with fear, actually, in the sense of I just want to be faithful to God and what he's asking me to do, but just to see the faithfulness of God to still provide for his people and give them what they needed is incredible. So God gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. You know, I almost wrote in here that God is fair, instead of just, and I thought, no, he's certainly not fair. He's certainly not fair. And I'm glad he isn't. Amen? Think about what fair means. The wages of my sin is death. Eternal separation from God is the wages of my sin. I'm glad he's not fair. But I'm also glad he's just. And he made a way. All right. Now, moving on. Moses, moving on to Joshua, 
God raises up a new leader. And there's lessons we're going to learn from this too in just a moment. But first we'll go into the scripture. And then we'll start with Joshua 1. Uh, 1 to 9. Now, by the way, I just always have to say this just in case you're looking. Anytime you see like a dot, 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 I've cut off part of the text. Now, I'm very careful in what I cut off. I also include the full reference because I never want you to think I'm, I'm trying to twist a verse. I don't do that. But please, check the references for yourself. Don't just believe something because I said it. That would be a tragedy. Get into the word for yourself and, uh, and check it out. But anyways, Joshua 1, 1 to 9, I often do it just so we can fit it onto the screen is really why I do it. But anyways, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that your sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to give to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river and the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards, toward the going down to the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. What an incredible, only God can say that. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. They're about to go into a land that is filled with enemies that are more numerous and far more powerful than they are. I mean, this is a nation that has just spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering around, being provided for, uh, for supernaturally by God, but they're going into a land that is filled with enemies far greater than them, and yet God says to him, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For the Lord shall cause the people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I love the charge to Joshua. Uh, particularly verses 8 and 9. Those are, I like to, I have always a handful of verses, 100 or so that I review kind of every week. Those are two that I review every week. I love them. Because you look at them and you say, well, that's specifically to Joshua, and you're right, they are, but the New Testament really kind of confirms that the charge he gave to Joshua and the promises actually still stand for us. He's still saying the same thing to the church today, and I love that. But what are the key things we can glean just from Joshua 1 here and God raising up a new leader? Because I want to get into him leading us into the promised land, but there are important things for us to see and the first one is, no leader or person is irreplaceable. If we won't trust and obey, we can miss out. I'm not always saying, are you saying that's how we get saved, you have to obey God and then it works? I'm not saying works. What I'm not saying, I like to say that, right? What I'm not saying is obey to be saved. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But if we're talking about successful and fulfilling the purpose for which God created us, it will require you to trust and obey. 
And if we refuse to do that, God will raise up another in our place. And we see that in leadership. We see that around. I mean, it's been tragic to see the amount of Christian leaders that have fallen. Even recently, if you follow some of that news, I do. I'm not going to go into a lot of the stories right now other than that it's heartbreaking and the damage it does for the church, for young people, the damage it's done to me. Because you see brothers and sisters falling. It's like casualties in a war. It's just... But yet, even though some will fall, and you think, how is the church going to survive? The church will survive because Jesus builds his church. It doesn't depend on us. If we refuse to trust and obey, he will raise up another, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Amen? So that's one lesson we can learn from Joshua, and that's no slander to Moses. Just, but it's a reminder to all of us that if we disobey, that God can put a, another person in, in, in our place, right? God can always raise up someone else. Next one, nothing can stop God from fulfilling his promises. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. Nothing can stop God. So that's a really important thing, and you're going to see that going throughout the rest of the story, that really the only thing that hinders any of their success is failure to trust and failure to obey. God does miraculous things that do not require our strength, gifting, and personality. It just requires our trust. A trust that's willing to step out in action to obey. That's really what it requires. Yep, so God gave Joshua also the secret to having strength and courage, which I, I love that, um, because three times, you notice that three times he calls Joshua to that? I always find it very interesting that he has to say three times, be strong and courageous. It's almost like he's addressing Joshua's heart. Now, it doesn't go on to say exactly what Joshua might have been struggling with, but right at the end it says, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, which kind of gives you a clue of the humanity that Joshua must have faced. I mean, we think of Joshua, you're like, oh yeah, raised under Moses, military commander, leads a six-year conquest into Canaan, into the promised land. I mean, yeah, he had it all together. I could never do what Joshua did. And yet here we find on the precipice of being sent in. Now, he's supposed to fill Moses' shoes. And three times, the Lord has to say, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. And the secret to that strength, which is beautiful, his presence. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. Now, again, we've got to be careful. And you can't just take a verse out of the Old Testament and apply every verse you want. Totally. But what about Hebrews 13, verse 5? Keep your life free from love of money, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. John 14, 8, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. <laughs> These are universal promises for God's people. I will be with you wherever you go, when you trust and obey. Now there's an omnipresence kind of sense to his presence being with us, but we're talking about a manifest presence. God will be with you when you go with him. Incredible promise. This is true for us today. All right. Moving into the promised land, okay? There's, uh, I think, five lessons I put old out of here. Six. Oh, yeah, whatever. I'll get to that. First one, Joshua 1. God calls Joshua. The people commit to obey and follow him as their new leader. Now, that is important to remember only because the entire generation before had committed the same thing to Moses, but they had been, you know, they died off in the wilderness because of rebellion, right? So now this is fresh start. We're about to go in, follow the Lord into, into battle. It's a fresh start, and the first thing they do, God calls Joshua. The people commit to obey him and follow him as their new leader. 
moving right into Joshua, uh, Joshua 2, and you have the story of the 12 spies. Now, I'm just going to kind of skip through a lot of these stories for the sake of time, uh, but you can go and read them. Uh, I read all of Joshua while I was doing prep. We just don't have time. That would take months uh, to actually go through it all because it's rich. So you can do it on your own. Anyways, Joshua sends 12 spies into Canaan because now they want to see, like, you know, well, before we do a military conquest, we should get a kind of the lay of the land. They haven't been there before. So they send the 12 spies in, particularly to Jericho, because they're going to have to go through Jericho to go into the rest of the land of Canaan. And there we meet Rahab. And look what it says here in Joshua 2, verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, uh, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, don't forget Rahab. Rahab takes these spies in and hides them. It's a fascinating story. She hides them because Rahab has heard all about the God of Israel. She's heard about the exploits of Yahweh. She knows. And not only that, she fears Yahweh, but in a way that causes her to want to obey him or surrender to him or submit to him. So she turns to God, and she actually hides them at great peril to her own life. She hides the spies on an upper, upper room in baskets uh, when, when the uh, soldiers come and demand, and then she says, oh, they went on another way. And we see that confirmed in James 2.25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? This is James when he's talking about faith without works is dead. And he talks about Rahab being justified before God because her faith resulted in works. Sounds like trust and obedience. Her faith resulted in works. Now, we don't do works to be saved, but when you trust God, if you trust him, if you truly have faith, you will produce works. That's kind of how it goes. That's a message for another day. James says that Rahab was saved. Right? She received the messengers one way, and she sent them out another way. And, and the very fascinating thing about this, think about this with Rahab. I mean, God always gives. So here are the lessons we can learn from Rahab. Number one, God always gives people a chance to turn from sin. Always. Always. Remember the charge in the beginning. God is genocidal in Canaan. Well, hold on a second, because this is the first interactions we have in the, in the land of Canaan. The very first interaction, and we have a story of a woman a prostitute woman who's also a Canaanite that God saves. Not only does he save her, he honors her. He honors her, he adopts her into his family. That's what James confirms, that she was adopted into his family and then included her in the lineage of the serpent crusher. She's the great, 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 great grandmother of David. Wrap your mind around that. And I, like, I can't even stress this enough. Because I know in a room this size, there are going to be people, young and old, who think that they are disqualified because of X. I've done this, and that disqualifies me from being used by God. Now, I won't say that your actions don't have consequences. We just learned that they do. But I will say that your actions do not disqualify you from being used from God. The failure to repent and turn to God disqualifies you from being used for God's purposes in a good, positive way. God will use anybody, which is incredible. So right now, we can already start deleting the idea that God is killing everyone in the Old Testament that isn't a Jew. He's just like 
indiscriminately going around killing because he's angry and unjust and he's against women and against people of other races because those are the charges being levied. That's why I said all the answers are in this book because how can those charges line up with even just this one story with Rahab? And this isn't just Rahab's story. This is my story. This is why I didn't come to God because I, I actually thought I had done too much. See, I, I was a, you might say, well, yeah, but she wasn't a believer and then she became one. I was one, walked away from God, and he treated me the same way. I know your name. I know what you've done. I love you anyways is what he said. That's the pattern we see in Scripture. Third, Joshua 3, Israel crosses the Jordan on dry land. That's another miracle, right? And I'll show you the Jordan in just a second, but the Red Sea is often the one we talk about. God actually did it twice. At the Jordan, he did the same thing again. And what he says basically here is Joshua calls the people to consecrate themselves. I think it's three days. I deleted some of that out of there. And, and then at the end of the three days to cross, because this, remember in the first one, Moses kind of holds up like this and parts the Red Sea, and then they walk across. This time, the priests were charged. They had to walk down and basically walk in ankle deep into the water. They had to take a step of obedience. They had to model trust and obedience to God first. And as they stood there, the waters parted, and it says all of Israel crossed the Jordan on dry land. Absolutely incredible. And the priests had to stand there the entire time. So as long as they stood there, then they were able to cross on dry land. And when the priests moved to the other side, then obviously the water came back. So absolutely incredible. So if we go back to here, now you'll notice I added the purple on there. Well, I didn't add. This is a free map that I had from one of my programs. But um, there, the purple shows the, the Joshua and the people of Israel's trip to, you'll see at the top there, the Dead Sea. And the Jordan is that little blue line going up there. Jericho on the other side. So that's where they're crossing right there. Right? So they're crossing in. And Amalek, Edom, you'll see Midian down here is Saudi Arabia, modern day. Uh, but Portions of Amalek there to Edom, Moab, Ammon, uh, and Felicia are all part of modern-day Israel today. In the Gaza Strip, there is right kind of by, well, you can see where Gaza is. There's a little strip there, just in case you're wondering how that fits on the modern-day map. Okay, so get that in your mind. And we're moving on to the fourth one. Joshua meets the commander or the angel of the Lord. Whose side are you on? And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that this is one of my favorite stories because I quote it often. Uh, but I love this story. So Joshua, so they've just crossed. Just imagine. You're, <laughs> remember, this is a guy that must have had fear and must have been struggling with a bit of dismay because the Lord had to keep reminding him, be strong and courageous, Joshua. Lead the people. Trust and obey. They've now just gone across the Jordan. They're about to face just enemies that are far more powerful and stronger, fortified cities. And this is where, you know, Joshua's kind of by Jericho. Maybe he's checking things out. And he lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, there's a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua goes and says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And the reason why I believe this is Jesus and why many people do, and that is because Joshua worships and the angel doesn't correct him. And you'll see that pattern in Scripture. If you try to worship an angel, they'll say, whoa, 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 we're just created beings like you are. And here, Joshua falls on his face and worships him. And he says, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua's probably looking at the Genesis 3.15 serpent crusher, and he won't even have realized it. You can just imagine that, right? I mean, God, I, 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 you read Ephesians and he talks about this mystery that God had, that heaven and earth is anticipating the revealing of the mystery. 
Serpent crusher, that, that's the mystery that, that, that all of heaven and everyone's waiting for. And he shows up multiple times in the Old Testament like this. And people will have known. They recognized him as God, but they wouldn't have recognized him as the fulfillment to that promise, which is incredible. But there's an important thing that we need to learn from this piece, and that is there's four things. Number one, the angel accepts worship, most likely Jesus. Oops, I actually gave away the name. I meant serpent crusher. We'll change that for the 11 just in case people catch on. Uh, whose side am I on is actually a good question for all of us to ask regularly. Because your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and I believe that. And one of the most common things that we will do is try to, you know, fulfill our plans on the earth and the whole Jesus take the wheel, right? Like, I'm going in this direction, Lord, and you just come in and bless my plans and empower my life so that I can do these things good. And as long as I'm not doing any major sin, then we expect that God's going to do what we think he should do in our lives. That is not what salvation looks like, the biblical picture of salvation, not in the Old Testament or the New. Rather, it's a picture of us laying down our lives. We're not saying come in and take the wheel of my life. It is more, Lord, I'm jumping onto your ship to be a part of your life. We're becoming a part of his story, not him necessarily becoming a part of ours, if you can see that distinction. That's the distinction here. They're about to go to battle, but it's not Israel versus Canaan. It's God executing his purposes and judgments in the land of Canaan, and we're going to talk about why at the end of the message. All right, fifth, Joshua 6 to 8. The victory at Jericho. Now we can all sing the song again. Okay, if you know the story of Jericho, you already know what happens, so don't spoil it, but if you would, if you would enter a city or come to a city like this, maybe the walls were higher, I'm not entirely sure. We don't have pictures of the actual Jericho's walls, okay? So this is just a picture that's free online. If you see walls like this, you're, you're there, they're a fortified city, they're stronger than you are, what's your battle plan? I mean, some of us are thinking, like, like can we use modern-day weapons? Like, can we use nukes? <laughs> can we use, is it battering rams? Is it ladders? Is it, like, what is it? Is it towers that we're going to kind of put against there? Probably, I mean, unless you already know the story, Probably the last thing you're going to use as a strategy is marching quietly to music around the city walls. Like, I don't think any human being that doesn't know the story of Jericho would ever conceive such a ridiculous idea to defeat a fortified city. And there's a lesson in here. Again, there are so many lessons. It's so rich. That's why I said we could take months in Joshua alone. There is so many lessons here because we face mountains like this. They just don't look like stone. Maybe, maybe it does in your life. I don't know what yours, yours is. Maybe it's, maybe it's anxiety or you lost your job or maybe it's a lost family member. Whatever that is, we know what it's like to face these fortified cities that look so, the walls are so high, the enemy is so powerful, we just cannot understand how we will ever prevail. And yet God says, go, arise, go over this Jordan to Jericho, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Look at, the, look at the instructions he gives. You shall march around the city. <laughs> Here we get those instructions that we all love but are really humanly ridiculous. March around the city, all the men of war, and you shall do this six days to the sound of music. 
and uh, not the movie, but actual music, like trumpets. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, the trumpet will sound. All the people will shout. Maybe they shout at Jericho like the Veggie Tales, right? And, uh, and then the walls will come down flat, and then you go in and straight before them. Okay, so that's what happens. Incredible. There's a couple things that we need to notice from here. Significantly, that first one. The people of Jericho, remember, Rahab's there. Rahab lives and all of her household. Rahab wasn't the only one that knew about Yahweh. They all heard about Yahweh. They knew who the Israelites were. They knew what God had done in, in, in uh, Egypt. They knew about it. They all heard the stories. In fact, think about how long Egypt had been. They landed 40 years in the wilderness because you're thinking, well, they didn't have cell phones. Maybe they didn't all know. They had 40 years for the news to travel, and news like that did travel. Because Rahab knew. If an innkeeper, a prostitute, a woman knows, the rest of them know. They had six days to turn and repent and discover God for themselves. Now you might say, well, bah, he wouldn't have necessarily, he wouldn't have necessarily relented. No? He did for the Gibbonites. And on the seventh day, the Lord gave them victory. The other thing you need to know is this. God does not need your strength, your skill, or your personality. He wants your heart. He wants you to trust and obey. He doesn't want you to follow your heart. He wants you to follow him. To love him with all your heart. Trust and obey. Okay, that's Jericho. So Jericho is a mighty battle, and VeggieTales probably should have made a, a song about AI as well. I don't know how that would have gone. Joshua lost the battle of AI, AI. Maybe something like that, right? Anyways, sorry, my wife's looking at me funny. Sorry. <clears throat> you should probably stay in the 11 too. All right. Keep your... <laughs> But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest after you've devoted, uh, sorry, yet when you've devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make camp of Israel a thing of destruction for the people. So essentially what he's saying is don't take any of the things devoted to the Lord, and if you do, all of Israel becomes an object of horror to the Lord. So he's saying don't do that. I'm trying to keep you successful throughout the whole land. You have to trust and obey. But he goes on to say the people broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan he went and took some of the devoted things and hid them in the ground in his tent. I don't have time to go through the whole story. But the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And men went up and spied out the, uh, the city. And they returned to Joshua and said, Do not have all the people go up. Let's, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. And do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So already notice the shift. Number one... Number one, there's sin in the camp, which God had warned against. They kept some of the devoted things. That's number one. Number two, they're already slipping from God's strength. It wasn't their numbers that defeated Jericho. It was never about numbers. It was always about trust and obedience. But here they're cutting their army back. We'll just cut the army back and we'll go over there. It's going to be an easy one. We don't necessarily need the Lord for this one. You ever felt like that? Lord, I got this. I could spend a whole day telling you of times I've done that and failed. 
Anyways, and it says they fled before the men of AI. There was sin in the camp. And the defeat at AI shows us something too, and that is human strength counts for nothing. It's really just enforcing those lessons we learned in Jericho. Human strength counts for nothing in God's economy. And you need to understand that because otherwise you're always going to compare to someone else. Someone else has more gifts, better opportunities, they have more money, they're smarter, they're better at fill in the blanks, and that's why they're able to do things. And I'm not saying humanly we can't do anything. I'm talking about bearing kingdom fruit that lasts, that will not burn up when we stand before the Lord. Kingdom fruit is not grown through human strength or wisdom. But it grows when we trust and obey. And that's something that every person that draws breath today in here can do. Young and old, it doesn't matter. We can trust and obey. Sixth lesson here, and that is <clears throat> uh, Joshua 13 to 22. I kind of skipped through here. Basically, though, to summarize the rest, because I want to get into the end, and that is it takes six years to conquer the land. Then Joshua divides it amongst the 12 tribes. And we know that they didn't keep the land, and the story continues on, and we're going to get on to that, because they still haven't gone through, we've got to go through the judges and the kings and so on and so forth. That's coming up. But I wanted to uh, start bringing this to a close, because we have a practicum, but I wanted to bring it to a close on that charge of genocide. Was what they did genocidal? Now, we've covered that to a point, to a little bit. We've covered a little bit of that. But I want to make it incredibly clear, so that if you hear this, you can at least know and you know how to respond. But even if you don't respond, you can know for yourself so your faith isn't shaken. Genocide is the intentional destruction of a people in whole or part. In 1948, the United Nations, I took this from Wikipedia, by the way. Oh, you'll see that on there. Uh, the Genocide Convention defined genocide as any of five acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part national, ethnical, racial, or religious groups. So does this, does this fit the criteria for the charge of genocide? The answer is no. And we're going to look at why. Number one, Rahab and her household were saved. They were Canaanites. That, 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 already, that alone has to strike something and say, oh, like what Hitler was trying to do to the Jews, that's genocide, indiscriminate destruction of Jews simply for being Jews. That is not at all what we see happening in the promised land. It wasn't indiscriminate. We see God saving those who accepted grace, who turned to him. Same with the Gibeonites. They're the ones who tricked Joshua. And I won't go through that story. It's a funny story. Uh, but they tricked them and ended up being a part of their people all along. So those are two things that right there already don't allow us to define it as genocide. But there's more. What about the instructions? So there's these instructions. You look here, um, Joshua 10:36. It says at the end, and devoted to destruction, and devoted it to destruction, and every person in it. Okay, they captured and struck to the edge of the sword. Okay, that sounds pretty final. We see words like all, none left, complete destruction. Well, you have to remember Joshua. So if you're just reading Joshua here, you might lose some of the story. But Joshua took the charge from who? Moses. Thank you. So Joshua got the charge from Moses. Moses got the original instructions for how they were going to go into the promised land. His rebellion just cost him that he, wasn't, he didn't get to be a part of it. So why don't we just go and look at the original one? 
So, marching orders. De- Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the, Hev- the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven, <laughs> the Mennonites. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. There's something good about the ites. Well, mate, these are bad ites. I don't know what that says about us. Anyways, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. Remember, that's why Joshua, what he's facing. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to, say it, say it with me, complete destruction. You must devote them to, it's uncomfortable, right? Let's say it one more time. You must devote them to, there we go. Okay, well, that sounds pretty final. Hmm. It seems like all, doesn't it? Well, why don't we just continue reading on in the exact same passage? Because you shouldn't just take two verses, right? What does it say right after? Oh, look at that. Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 5. Uh, it says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asher and burn their carved images with fire. Hold on a second. How do you intermarry with people that are devoted to destruction that don't exist? Why do you have to break down their altars for fear that they're going to continue worshiping their false gods? Because it's hyperbolic language that the military used. It was common in that day, and people use it now. We're just going to annihilate them, right? You do it with sports. We're going to just completely wipe them out. We're going to annihilate them. It's hyperbolic language to say we're going to, totally, we're going to have total victory. We're not going to stop until we completely win. Now, I'm not saying this doesn't mean that people didn't die. No. In war, war is tragic. War, people do die. That is true. War is tragic. Human life, image bearers getting lost is tragic. But that doesn't mean that not all wars are just. There is such thing as just war. And God is a just God. So that's very important for us to understand uh, as we look at those stories. And lastly, the Canaanites were very wicked, and this will go very quickly. They practiced child sacrifice. Some uh, scholars and historians say that could be anywhere from like infancy up to like three years old, and some even say as far as six to 15. Let that sink in. Common practice. It says in Genesis that God was going to wait because the, the sin of the Amorites had not been fully complete yet, which is part of the Canaanite family. The sin hadn't been completed. He waited 400 years, giving them chances to turn and repent from that sin. That's wickedness that has to be stopped. And lastly, the Canaanite conquest, it is different. I don't know if I had it on there. No, I don't. But the Canaanite conquest was a unique situation in the Bible. God is birthing a nation. A nation that he was going to give the scriptures through. A nation that he was going to send the serpent crusher through. He had to protect the lion. He did deal differently with them. Or at least, (laughs) it it, it seems like he, he didn't wait as long with some of the things. He really called them to be set apart. So how are we going to apply this today? That's where we're going to close. Well, first thing, who is God? Is he angry? Is he unjust? 
I think we can clearly answer with an abundant no. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is quick to forgive. He desires to save all people. But he's also holy. And he is judge. Though just like scripture says, he desires mercy. He desires mercy, not judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But he will judge. We also learned what does God require of us? Do you guys remember? What is he looking for? To be successful. Trust and obedience. That's something that you can do here today. And so I'm going to put the, the back screen. It's not coming up for me. So if you want to help me out. Maybe you identify with Rahab and you feel like you're an outsider, an outcast, and you're stuck in sin. God could never use you. Or maybe you feel like Joshua. Maybe you have fear in your life and you're held back and you feel like God's calling you to either it's raising your family or doing something in business or doing something in ministry, whatever it is, but you feel like you, have, you're not, you don't have nearly the strength in and of yourself to complete the calling that's on your life. And so you're stuck in fear. Or you relate to being the enemies of God like the Canaanites. And if that's you, I just want to remind you of something. Because if you're sitting here and you think that your sin disqualifies you from God being able to save you, I'm telling you, he gave them 400 years to repent. There is nothing that you can do that God cannot forgive. So I want you just to meditate on those. Just give it a minute. As we go into this last song. <laughs>